Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sunday Janasia. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And today I'm thrilled to have hopefully who I can call a good friend, a mentor of sorts, Dr. John White. He is the chief medical officer of WebMD and has a litany of experience in really meeting the needs of Americans and the community, both in a preventative care setting, as well as with just straight education on, okay, well, what is diabetes and what is cancer? He's a best-selling author. In fact, I wanted the, the How to Beat Cancer book, but that's in my office, but I also have your diabetes one. And um, I'm just- Hold on, hold on, Dr. Chinesian. Yeah. Super thrilled to have you. I'm sure you have it somewhere. I'd be a bad author if I didn't have a copy somewhere. There we go. Take control of your cancerous. That's it. So how are you doing this morning? I am well. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's always great to, to chat with you. Likewise. What made you decide that you wanted to um, make the book on, you know, the cancerous part? Was it that you started seeing like a big kind of concern about it? Did you want to learn about it yourself, you know, to a higher degree? I always meant to ask you what inspired that. Sure. Uh, and I'm an internist. I still see patients. I only do it one day a week. And I've always been interested in the concept of prevention. And it's really a difficult diagnosis, you know better than I, when you tell someone that you have cancer. Right? That's really the word they want to avoid, more so than even heart disease. Yet we have this guidance, this data, in terms of how we can reduce risk. But I know I haven't always done it well. I know many of my colleagues don't talk about it enough. And then there's confusion over these genetic tests. As you know, most people think cancer is caused by genetics, and some is, but the majority is influenced mostly by lifestyle, environment, what we eat, how we exercise. So I really wanted to provide everything kind of in one resource and, and get them to think about the risk for cancer in a different way. I absolutely love that. And I think that's one of the safest things is to kind of maybe address some of those things that are thought to have been one way and then realize it's not. And the one that you really hit was, you know, genetics. I've heard and still hear sometimes, you know, I don't necessarily feel as pressed to get my screenings because I don't have a family history. Sure. But, you know, we used to say 95%. Now we say maybe 85% of cancers are mutations that happen in your lifetime and not that you were inherited with, which are germline mutations. Instead, these mutations are called somatic mutations or ones that happen in your lifetime. You had a 52 card deck that was normal. And then those cards kind of, you know, if you have kids, they draw on them or we get bent up. And then that that's what happens as people get older, which is why cancer is generally, a, you know, a disease of age. You don't see as many, nearly as many 30 or 40 year olds as you do twice the time later, 80, because you have that more mutational. Right. Every cell in our body, right, yeah. is, is has been duplicated. You're not born with any cell other than central, uh, central nervous system and for females, um, you know, eggs and the ovaries. But for the most part, I always thought it was silly with the hand. Your hand's different in five years. That's because the cells actually, none of them existed there seven years ago. Like they're all, they're all carrying copies. So that's a huge point. And then also, and I can see both ways where you're like, you know, we know that things that reduce the risk, but when you accept or realize that people do have, and I think we've talked about this just in, in personal conversation on the phone, where do you draw the line on saying, okay, well, we know this does and this and this, like a single alcohol drink, unfortunately, you know, I wish it was different, but that that really does show an increase in cancer risk pretty much to any amount. There was a little period where like, oh, maybe- Particularly we see that in, you know, in breast cancer and some of the endocrine cancers. But, but I think what's hard is that we're talking about how 
we have an impact on our risk. And I talk about in the book, you can follow everything in this book and do everything right and still get cancer because of those inherited mutations that you refer to. And in no way do I want to try to imply that somehow people are responsible for their cancer diagnosis. And I mentioned to you the other day, and I wanted to talk about that, that we don't want people to think they're responsible for their cancer risk. But there are things that we do over time that can increase our risk. And people have to be aware of that and recognize that they have some control. But we also don't want people to think, well, if if you get breast cancer, somehow it's your fault. Or if you get prostate cancer, it's your fault. So it's not. You know, we've had a, a, a long history of people that get lung cancer. Somehow, you know, we talk about how they're at blame for it. And that's much more complicated than that about addiction of nicotine. So, you know, it's the overall concept of, as you know, kind of this wellness approach to, to care, including cancer. 100%. And kind of identifying it to yourself where on that line you want to fall and, and are comfortable with, right? You gave a great example. I mean, we have plenty, most smokers that smoke even two yeah. packs a day will not get lung cancer. And yet we know 10%, 10 to 15% of lung cancers are never smokers. So, I mean, that that fact alone can tell you, yes, you can do everything right to mitigate your risk. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, whether you call it serendipity or divine or fate or whatever, it's not something you did or didn't do. Because right. there are plenty of people that drink alcohol that never get cancer. That's right. Plenty of people that don't, that do. So it's more where you- People always think they're going to be that one, Dr. Junage. They all think I'm going to be that one that is going right. to smoke and not get cancer. Or I'm going to be the one that, you know, has an unhealthy lifestyle. And I'm going to be fine because I know plenty of people that are worse. I hear that time and time again. And then more often than not, they're not the person that- doesn't have any problems and you never really know anyone's complete you know health history the other thing is is you know this book came out during the pandemic when people weren't getting screened and and that's a big issue i as an internist i always see patients who delay colorectal cancer screening who don't show up to the colonoscopy i mean the good news is we have a lot more tests uh, nowadays for colorectal screening but even in mammography we see people miss their screening intervals. We see people not really understanding what the screening recommendations are, and all doctors aren't good about keeping people informed. And then you and I first met uh, around the concept of CT screening, low-dose CT screening for lung cancer. How many people aren't getting screened? The overwhelming majority aren't. So how do we empower people with good, credible information that allows them to take some ownership of their health. I love that. Is that 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 in a minimum is what we are responsible for as a medical community and physician provided community. Equip, you know, patients in the community to at least know what their choices are, what's indicated, what the data shows. Because if something happens and us as the medical, you know, like side of this country yeah. in healthcare, if someone did not know, was not aware, then that's a drop on our part, right? You know, that's where again this whole conversation of of you can do everything or not. Like I drink seldomly enough to where if God forbid if I were to have cancer, I don't think I could tell, ask myself, well, why did I ever drink alcohol sure. at all? Like I'm comfortable with the level, which I think mitigates the rest enough, knowing that alcohol does still any bit cause an issue, but I still do it. I know I could probably not eat red meats at all. I've reduced it. So everything is a sliding scale. But as far as recommendations go, like you said, screening, the whole concept of screening is saying, this is where your risk is high enough to where even people that don't like, you know, necessarily having to spend money or resources they're like it's still going to be 
potentially more cost prote protective to catch something early. If you want to be that person that says, well, you know, the industry is all money. Even in this scenario, that's where they're like, it just makes more sense. I'd rather pay SET every year because of one, from our end, the, the morbidity and awfulness of like an undiagnosed lung cancer. But even cost-wise, it's still easier to get it out. And that's where that's where sometimes I'll, I'll, the people that are a little more radical, somewhat reasonably about healthcare and costs, because those, yeah. those are very real issues. I can say, well, think about it this way. These screenings are getting paid for by somebody because it's still probably cost-beneficial because, you know, it just saves your... Help yeah. chances of not having something terrible. Yeah. And I'm in Washington, D.C., as you know, so there's a lot of political aspects to this actually going on right now. But, you know, most preventive services, if the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends it, which are the ones mostly that we're talking about, um, should be covered with no copay under the Affordable right. Care Act. Sometimes there's confusion because there's added costs about, you know, reading certain uh, tests. But we don't want people to miss it because of fear of being able to afford it. Um, yeah, and, and that's exactly. a big concern. Where, where I see also people not showing up, and I talk about it in the book, is the fear of finding out, FOFO. You don't want to know. You feel a lump. And I've seen plenty of patients over the years who feel a lump, and it was a year ago. And you think, how could it have taken you so long to come in? I never say that, but, but I think that. And, you know, as you start to have an understanding with your patient that it's often they don't they didn't want to know they didn't want to right. have it impact their lives um right. and unfortunately um delaying diagnosis delays treatment and and that can have a significant impact on morbidity and mortality and that's where that's where i personally some opinion think it's so important that and i believe maybe naively but like if a patient knew you know dcis is a stage zero and it presents as a lump, and it doesn't require usually like chemotherapy or anything like that, and you avoid an invasive cancer. Or if it's a stage one hormone positive, that is surgery plus minus radiation, even that's a little bit debated lately, uh, um, but but still that's the standard recommendation. I think if patients, if all patients knew that, perhaps they would say, oh, I want to get this out before I need chemotherapy or it goes to lymph nodes and spread. But if they don't, they don't if they haven't been taught that, and yeah. the theory is what they experienced with cancer and their loved ones or heard about it in previous generations, they are fully reasonable. Like that, that is like radical, right? So that's where, again, where it comes up. I don't think most people think through that though, from the beginning. They don't. That, and that's, why we should that's, that's not their that knowledge part. base. Yeah. I, I don't exactly. understand how my TV works, <laughs> right. laptop. Uh, I don't think about the challenges of it, uh, but you, you want it fixed. And everyone's kind of at a different point in their life too. Um, and it's just frustrating because despite the advances that we've seen in cancer treatment, still hundreds of thousands of people die from cancer every year and are diagnosed. Right, 100%. And that's where, you know, that's why I do my social media to a large degree is education. It's, it's because, you know, I see firsthand that some people, I, I pride myself, I haven't said this on a podcast before, but at home, like, you know, I have really good, like, Southern, like, people, patients that come in. And there's not a small number that are just very, they're 65, 70, just very scared of the, of the colonoscopy or, or whatever. Check. And then I'll tell them, like, I mean, like, let's first see if you're iron deficient. So iron deficiency has missed a lot to basically propagate investigation on where is your iron going? Mm -hmm. Do you have a gastric bypass? Do you have a stomach surgery? Oh, so you don't have any overt reason why you would just stop absorbing all of a sudden? Well, let's look at the other most common thing, which is blood loss, right? Get the urinalysis, see if there's mm -hmm. microscopic blood cells. Because you can have same stage zero, in situ mm -hmm. bladder cancers, little renal lesion, cut it out. 
you know, kidney cancer cured, like they're very easy fixes, but the investigation needs to happen. But I pride myself on the fact that when I, when I explain, I found to someone that, you know, comes in and, and reasonably is like, I just don't, I feel fine. I say, you're going to feel fine if for anything that's early and not spread, but they can literally conceivably snip, slip, uh, snip it out and get that, you know, pre-cancer out or tumor. And then when they go, and then it's, you know, like tubular villus adenoma. So it's like the scariest thing short of a cancer. Then all of a sudden, you know, they almost say, I have, I have one last week. She was just like, thank you, doctor. Let me do this. Like, I actually do, like, I say I didn't, didn't matter, but I feel so much more at peace knowing. And, and, and she had this big polyp that, you know, five, 6% chance of turning into cancer in five years. But, but there's nothing I did. All I, all I facilitated was just understanding that it's like not necessarily a, oh, you have a terrible cancer, life's over. Instead, like, hey, let's find something and hopefully avoid a really bad problem. But we have to help people, you know, understand these issues and empower them. And they're not going to come to you first. They're going to come to me, someone like me in primary care, and I'm managing 10 other things. And they have a low hematocrit, right? So now, because I didn't order iron studies to begin with, because that's not a typical uh, routine study, is they're going to have to come back in. Right, and I'm going to get some more lab tests. And then we have to do some additional tests, and now all of a sudden they feel okay, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I'm subjecting them to all these tests, and then all of a sudden, I'm saying you might have cancer, and they're saying I, I don't feel any different. So there's there's that population too, and sometimes the workup turns out to be nothing, and then they end up spending a lot of money, and they get frustrated over that. So it, it's really the system as well that sometimes works against patients. And we really need to empower them with the information. You know, I wish we had more time to talk to each patient. But by the time they reach you, they're already in a different mindset because they have that diagnosis. And now they're they're more prepared um, to go on that journey. But getting to you is also a challenge as well. Yeah. All too often. And it's, it's something we have to fix. Yeah. That's why I try to catch... If they're just sent to me for, you know, a white count that's up from steroids or whatever, I make sure to kind of look at mm-hmm. that that piece. And and sometimes like, I thought I was just getting it from a white count. I'm like, but we just need to know. We just need to make sure. Chances are it's nothing. Chances are it's, yeah. it's a benign little gastric ulcer or whatever. But, you, and then they're like, yeah, I want to know. I want to know. You know so, but There's been a lot of talk about that uh, we should revise the CBC in terms of all the measurements that we put in there. We don't use them all and it can be confusing to doctors. But then we also talk about, oh, we now we need to add calcium to our measurements. We need to be thinking about multiple myeloma. We need to be thinking about other conditions. So it, it's we really do need a more concept, comprehensive approach to cancer screening. Who Pardon makes me? these decisions? Who makes these I don't know. Guidelines. Who's so, you know, it'll be, you know, uh, American College Physicians, American Family Physicians, but it has to be propagate, promulgated. You know, doctors have to follow it. Um, but I also think it's important, um, Dr. Jadeja, at times for patients to think about it. I like when patients say to me, oh, Dr. White, I, you know, everyone wants a vitamin D because you know, they've heard about vitamin D uh, deficiencies. But sometimes based on their family history as well, Maybe they do need a calcium. Maybe they do need, you know, uh, iron deficiency, you know, testing. Maybe they do need some other testing that maybe aren't as routine. But we're not always the best history takers, especially nowadays, in talking to patients about their genetic risk. And then, you know, how do we help them interpret these genetic testing like 23andMe? That that can be very confusing because it, it looks for a very small number of inher- and you correct me if I'm wrong, because you know better than I, inherited mutations, right? So for 
uh, breast cancer. You know, it's BRCA1, BRCA2, but they're only looking for a few variants in, in these different types of cancer. So sometimes patients will take these tests and will tell them they have no variants. There's lots of disclaimers in very small print, but it's very hard to read. That's not their get out of jail free card either. And sometimes people think that, oh, I don't, I, I took a, a test. I'm not at risk. And, and that's not, that's not completely accurate. They don't have those inherited mutations. Exactly. For a very small subset of cancers. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's why I had to pull a, a specialist. I had uh, Dina DNA or DNA Dina, forgive me. Dina's a friend of mine. She's a geneticist out of, out of California, very, especially cancer focused. And I have to admit, I was even a little placated or palliated when mine was negative. I'm like, you know, I knew that didn't take up the main reason people get cancer, but I was like thinking about my children and stuff. No, why, why did you get it? Did you just curiosity? Uh, I understand me almost sillyly like to see like, oh, I wonder what my genealogy is. And it's like, okay, sure. And I'm like, okay, I'm in the big surprise. Why did I just spend that 200 bucks? But then with it came with, uh, um, I'm actually 9% Eastern Asian. My mom lives in the very East, um, India, which is called Assam. So that, that was actually something I learned. Very interesting. Yeah. But, um, but, the mutations, it's twofold. It's not just what you said that they're going to miss them. In fact, a lot of the positives, she really talked about that and highlighted it. A lot of the things that we're saying to be positive weren't actually like phenotypically relevant, meaning that it's actually mm-hmm. something that's presenting or showing in their like mm-hmm. life or their the way that they're cross-linking for BRCA and stuff works. So there was a litany. All it taught me that podcast was if there is any concern about a positive thing or a family history that's hard to believe isn't genetic, you need to see a geneticist or a specialist. I'm hoping with your ACP and the Washington DC and a few things rattled off, you know, we don't have as much difficulty referring to geneticists once they have cancer, but I think I, I just can't imagine it's something that not everybody would be winning to be able to cover to see a geneticist. At the that's that's once they have cancer. I mean, it makes it a little easier now with the virtue of online and, and um, you know, more virtual things, but every place, every insurance doesn't covered especially early on when you're starting to take that family history and then you want to talk because most of us in primary care don't really understand genetics to the degree that we need to to make recommendations in terms of you know prophylactic treatment in terms of you know everyone knows the the story of uh angelina jolie and having mastectomy that's not for everyone it's based on you know, numerous factors. And you really want someone who's going to be able to take the time to go over this with you. It's very relevant in terms of childbearing um, and for your current children to know. So important role. And and that's something where we have to acknowledge it. It costs resources. And sometimes people don't always understand, well, why do I need this? Or why should I do this? And this is several hundred dollars and I don't know if I can afford it. Um, And those are real challenges that, that we have to address. I mean, even oncologists, a general community oncologist doesn't know everything about like the preventative part of these mm-hmm. mutations. Like that's why a geneticist or a like, you know, that there's a dedicated field, especially with as much as we're learning of all these mutations that said undetermined significance back when I was a fellow, which was, I guess now before like four or five years ago are now are so significant and some are truly not even popping up. So like, it's just so rapid that you have a, you have a dedicated, yeah. you know, constellation of people that, that can navigate this because we're constantly updating it as our technology gets better looking retrospective. A fellow four to five years ago. I wish I could say that. That's <laughs> it. You look like you're closer than I am. It's been a long you know, time. So that brings me to a great transition to, we talked about genetics. We talked about working up 
for cancers in asymptomatic people, meaning like people that don't have symptoms, sure. that there are little tip-offs that I can see, you know, you have a big protein gap, let's check for protein cancer because your calcium's a little high, PTH is low, basically things that I can see. Yeah, like, see, I okay, just said calcium, but most people aren't, aren't, most people aren't getting the calcium. But yeah, go right, ahead. Right, right, right. So whatever, whatever, whatever it may be, you know, that we talked about testing for people that don't have symptoms. Now, everyone has seen a lot about, and I've got a question about this from my uh, orthopedist friend, but he's an ortho, I'm just kidding, uh, the other day, and he was like, hey, what do you think about doing a test like uh, Gallery or one of these that say, do you have cancer, right? So that is the new genetic test that says, do you actively at this moment have cancer? That's what we're talking about when we talk about Grail, Gallery, and some of these other things. And the way that that, as I understand it, is used in the primary care setting, the way it was studied, at least, I know that because I was looking at what what facilitated this mm-hmm. like availability of the market. It's that for the patient that you just don't know what's going on, but there is constitutional symptoms of fatigue, weight loss. Mm-hmm. When we say anorexia, it's not necessarily like... like unintentional weight loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unintentional weight loss is, is how we like traditionally have used in oncology with chemo meds, but um, if they have things that you can't explain and they linger, right? So it's not like a two week recovery or mm-hmm. whatever. That's when this test is indicated, which can you not indicated where it's approved to be used as an additional diagnostic tool. So if you went, if you went far enough to get just general imaging and those are negative, mm-hmm. remember it takes 300 million cells to mm-hmm. see it on an average CT scan. But what if you have 50,000? What if you have a hundred thousand? What if it's your gut? The CT scans mm-hmm. don't do a great job of looking at all those folds in the mucosa. It could mm-hmm. be anywhere, you wouldn't know. So that's when you get this test. This is a molecular or, or NGS, uh, next genomic sequencing. They're looking at not just this, like for constellation of cells, like a CT scan. They're looking for the products within one cell to see if there's a high enough load that says, whoa, we know that this profile is likened with yeah. colorectal cancer. We know this profile are the very common mutations in lung cancer. So it can tell you at that moment only. And that's what I had to explain to my friend. I'm like, but what happens in like, if you're doing it just in general, like for family history, that doesn't mean you don't have cancer in six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, because you've got to check it every time. And, and it's, right? not a, it's not a general screening for the general population either. And, you know, it's also been studied in people that already have cancer and then they're trying to look retrospectively as well. What's exciting about the technology is really this idea that we're looking for fragments, right? Can we see cell parts, so to speak, and detect them that say early cancer? I think these are going to continue to get better, but there, today, there's still no test as, you know, before we had this, people would be like, isn't there a scan? They all think, you know, like a, you know, a sci-fi scan that it can scan the body and tell them if they have cancer. We, we don't have that. That's not what CT scans does or PET scans or MRI. Um, and we still don't have that lab test, despite what some companies might say. We're not there yet for general screening of the population with no symptoms. Right. Right. You clarified it a little better. And that's something for them you know, to talk about to their doctor. But the key, and this is where I think many of us don't do well, is how do we interpret the results? How do we help mm-hmm. patients? understand what the results mean and th- and that's where there's the confusion yeah i'm not sure i understand the results sometimes right i mean one is positive so we use it all the time now at least i do after i've curatively treated somebody they're coming out the woodwork on all these companies you use before to find out 
if there are therapeutic implications, meaning they have a target that can help you add on a therapy or replace chemo with a targeted therapy if they have that mutation. So we already use it for therapeutic intent, meaning like what is our what is our toolbox going to be to treat your cancer? But once the cancer is treated and technically technically you're in remission or have no disease, a lot of people are starting to, including myself, use the testing because it's approved to check every three months to see for anything circulating because that gives you the best chance of getting For those back people in. that already had a diagnosis of cancer. Correct. Correct. Yes. Correct. And there's two ways you can do it. One, you can do a general panel that just looks at all mutations in colorectal or whatever and says, yeah, it's back. And the other ones look at the actual profile of your original cancer and then sequence for that. They make their own, you know, PCR mm -hmm. basically and, and, and check to see if there is a occurrence. But the problem is, for the general population, if already we can say we didn't see it on the CT scan, or if, if you know, maybe in colorectal, if you didn't see it on the CT scan and you had a positivity, you could say, okay, this is a reason for colon colonoscopy, but will insurance cover it? Because now you're now you're getting off the reservation. You don't have really a reason for your colonoscopy. I've got five other tests in, in colorectal cancer screening that, that I could do. It's not five, but there are several right. other tests I can do. This, screening. One, it's, this one's much more sensitive than checking for blood. Like this is on a molecular yep. level. Mm -hmm. Or if it's like a pancreatic, but they do an you know an ERCP and they see that there's no lesion. Now you've inflicted with well, pancreatic would be one that we need. We don't have good screening tests. See, in some ways, we could argue we should do those in those areas where we don't have good screening tests. Also, colorectal cancer is slow growing, or right. That's why we have these screening intervals right. and you know age. So, I mean, these are all what we need to get it? better. How would you find it if it's positive? That's that's my concern. What do you yeah. do? That, like, do you just sit with this knowing you have cancer for three months until it actually shows itself on an image? Because you can't take it out if you can't see it. No, I, I don't know. That that's a great question. But those are that's also things that you can do to try to minimize, you, you know, metastasis and growth. It's also, you know, as a side point, I learned this recently when I was at a, a cancer conference, ESMO, the European side of medical oncology, in Europe in the fall about we're also bad in language. And you and I haven't talked about this before where there was a, a patient who was at this conference who talked about the doctor, you know, said her, um, you know, results were positive. And she didn't go back for six months. This is one of those examples, not because she was fearful of it, but to her positive meant good. Right. Oh, so we are using that's that language in terms of in medicine that we use positive sounds like a good thing but it's a bad thing in medicine so she never went she never went back because she didn't think she oh. needed to so in some ways we also have to think about that that we tend to be you know very scientific and we have this parlance this language that we all understand but can be confusing um to patients so that's something that we have to you know think about as well yeah 100 percent. another example is uh progressing so like sometimes a family will say so we'll get another scan in three months and make sure we're progressing as in progressing on like you know like making gains on the medicine yes and no i know not use that word and i'll tell them i'm like we're not we don't use progressive because like that's we say cancers progress but you know colloquially and so i don't really that word of positive negative i like half choke but then when yeah. i say it like that all of a sudden they stop laughing and they're like oh yeah no we're not going to use those terms yeah. i'm like exactly so it's very challenging but that's the reason for my social media john like That's where right. I'm trying, like I've spent so many hours, you know, you know, from family and all just trying to have these little decks or somehow, because there's just so much to be done. And the worst thing is it's one thing to not have a, a solution, but the worst thing is if bad things are happening because of a lack of communication or, or, or education or that kind of integration of what we know in medicine and what the, what, uh, you know, non-medical people are provided with, if there are drop balls because of that, those are the things that give me 
IBS, for example. Like how, mu- how much does how much does the environment play? Because here we can talk about all these things we can control. You can't always control where you live. You don't necessarily understand what's happening in your soil or, yeah. or the ozone. So what? Modifiably, I think modifiably, the environment. It it's just hard to say. Like I don't think it's as big for the modifiable. Short of not roasting in the sun, mm-hmm. right? Like if you work around a lot of, you know, chemicals with a lot of patients that work in chemical plants and sometimes at least some of the uh, older patients that have before better measures were taken for inhalational stuff like that's that's usually, you know, bone marrow disorders, uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. And uh, we, we don't see those as much anymore, though. You don't. Do I, I see I see a good bit here, but, mm-hmm. but that's those I think are based on the chemical. event of, of where the sun is a great example you know it's it's now yeah. getting warm people are out in the sun I now I do always tell people about sunscreen uh especially when I see people burn and tan and I'll be honest sometimes they'll, they'll like roll their eyes <laughs> and then it, it's sad because when we see people that do develop melanomas other you know cancers not not all are associated with the sun um you know they all say they wish they wore sunscreen because oh, of disfiguring, every they can cause major right problems. So that's one yeah. thing we always have to remind people: sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen. It, it, I'm very proud. A lot of my, the, a lot of the survivors, the younger patients, their 20s, 30s, they go all of a sudden on this like huge soapbox on their social media. It's like tan beds are terrible because they don't want anyone to get to go through it. And it, to me, it's just so humbling. For like practicing cancer will always be humbling. Mm-hmm. You just see this tremendous strength and like and things you admire about about patients and people all the time. Mm-hmm. But they just don't want anyone to go through what they went through. That scare, oftentimes, if they're in their twenties and thirties when they had young kids, or 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 were thinking of not even having kids yet and wanted to. So that sun is a big yeah. one. And then ever since I learned about uveal melanoma, I still don't do a good enough job about wearing sunglasses. Mm. Let alone you talked about twenty three and me. My thing told me I'm going to have macular degeneration and all this stuff that comes with sun exposure, and I still don't wear sunglasses enough. And so that's talking about that's modified a good point. And yeah. You know, I don't like, either. Yeah, and if you have lighter eyes, so my wife has blue eyes. You know, she she did hers, and everything was like for the eye stuff because you even have less mm. melanin blocking the stuff. So that's another example of not from the rare cancers from my end, but just the health of, of long term. Yeah. Interestingly, John, you're gonna love this. I had uh, from Pitt. I had a wizardry, you know, uh, PhD from Harvard, and he was telling me he's studying regenerative medicine. Okay. <laughs> and Dr. Michael Levin. And he asked me, like all this stuff is that we're talking about is regenerative. So imagine for macular degeneration, yeah. that's, the macular can't regenerate. We don't know how. But it's caused right. blindness. Right, exactly. And anything else like your arthritis that we can't regenerate. If you get a spinal cord injury, you can't regenerate. He asked me, do you know the one animal in existence that is the impetus or the, the holy grail of sorts on saying that it can be done, regenerative medicine in this world? Like it is the... It is the thing, it is the one animal that everyone says it is conceivable and therefore humans should be able to regenerate any tissue in their body. And that's it's what like has... small or it's in like an octopus or a slug or something. I just asked my... Flatworm. Oh, a flatworm. Okay. If you cut a flatworm, it's like butthole, it's, it's left pinky, it's nose. The whole flatworm will regrow from whatever piece of that mm. platform that you had, including spinal cord brain. And get this, even the memories it had, because it's going to take, it's going to go back up. I don't know how they test that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like, because they go back up into, like, 
we, the reason we can't regenerate is all of our cells, our stem cells differentiate, 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 and they can't go back up. That's the whole concept, right? So spinal cord kids until five or six, they can actually still like, like, uh, regenerate their spinal cord and brain stuff mm -hmm. if they have injuries. Why seizures in three at three years old is much worse than thirty mm -hmm. because when you have permanent damage, there's no you don't have those cells to regenerate centrally. Mostly, that is the whole concept of regenerative medicine. And they're even studying in cancer. They're like, how do we go backwards in the cancer cell process mm -hmm. to say forget killing them? Can we make them just go back up and then yeah. come back down without that error that they had? And but that's interesting because you know in diabetes we used to say that once beta cells lose function they're done that they can't regenerate exactly. but but now we're starting to think they may not regenerate but can they regain function uh, that's some new thinking in terms of reversal of diabetes um that's so, i mean it's amazing the amount of innovation that that we have you know in, in this area but but again this goes back to if we can prevent something from happening you know it's the same in type 2 diabetes uh type 1 is very different uh, but if we could do that in cancer, that would make all of our lives, you know, much easier. Um, yeah. So that that's something to think about as well. And as, as you know, people in their 20s and their 30s, they're not thinking about preventing cancer, or preventing heart disease. They're thinking about how do I start a family? How do I succeed in work? How do I enjoy life? And it's it's really this mindset. And, and what I find is people always think I'll deal with that later, right? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll address that later on. And what we have to remind them is it's the daily choices over time that add up. So when we talk about healthy eating, it doesn't mean you can never have a hot dog. You can never have a hamburger or ice cream. It just means you can't have it every day. It's those daily choices that add up that are cumulative that are going to have an impact. And, and all too often, people don't associate their behaviors with some symptoms or activities. I see a lot of runners and then people come in with knee pain and I'm not making this up and I and I say, you know, you're gonna have to reduce your running. And they'll be like, oh, Dr. White, I've been running for 20 years. I've never had any problems, right? So they're thinking it's not related. And I'm like, it's, it's added up over time, it's cumulative. And now you're starting to have, and it really takes several visits to get them to understand it's related to your running because it's added up. It's the same thing with weight. And someone will say, you know, Dr. White, I've been overweight for 20 years. I've only had diabetes for two. You know, I don't think it's, you know, because of that. And and it's really helping people to understand their choices over time will catch up to them. And, that, and that's the same thing as we try to develop a comprehensive, personalized, you know, cancer strategy. And then it's also we tell people you need to eat healthy. You need to lose weight. And they don't give them guidance. And one of the things I've learned by writing books and, and seeing patients is, you know, the publisher will always say, you have to have a meal plan. You have to have, you know, an exercise plan. You have to tell people what to do. That's what they want. And you don't want them to go elsewhere for bad information. So, you know, I don't know if you go over all that with your, your patients, but that's not something that we're typically trained well in. We often don't have time to do it. Most doctors don't get paid to provide that. So right or wrong, they, they don't provide it. So it's really about empowering people with information. You know, at WebMD, we say better information leads to better health. And and I really do believe that um, because there's so much that people can do to impact their health, which they may not think, Sanjay, that they can do, right? It's all, it's all fate for a lot of people. Yeah, it's all fate, right? Or it's like, it's happening to me, you know, and that's that's our fault. That's not their fault. Like it's, it's to educate. You're exactly right. One of the examples I use them, you know, sometimes and to make it 
you know, not to make it a smaller, mm-hmm. it is a bigger issue. But when you take your car to like mm-hmm. a mechanic, right. And you just, you know, it's the same way with the, why I didn't I did this didn't happen three years ago. Like the brakes start like not being able to break mm-hmm. as much, started hearing a sound. If you don't change your oil beautifully, you start having permanent, mm-hmm. you know, like sediment into that engine yeah. that's like the downstream later be an issue. And then the same thing when I, you know, sometimes when I go and I've now taken it upon just to learn, you know, just cause I, I don't like be, having being clueless about something. I think most of us can relate to that. When they say you need this, 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 and the bill is like $9,000. It's a lot harder for me to me. And I say, that's the same thing as you need to lose weight. You need to eat more fruits and veggies. You need to like, like basically start running five, four times a, a week uh, for 30 minutes. See, this is the, the cardiology recommendations. But you're not explaining why or what, the, yeah. what that sympathetic drive on your heart does. What it means to have like parasympathetic stimulation when you like meditate and have less stress. When when those are things that make your eyes open. So same thing with the with the mechanic or the auto shop. If they're giving me another bill and these words are, are jumbo, I'm just like, what do I need, need right now? Which is mm-hmm. sometimes the immediate fix, the statin, the the insulin the whatever else but then when i learn well they're like well this one is the one that mm-hmm. pumps through the intake and makes all the air blow out in all the different yeah. ways and you need it for three years now suddenly i feel a little more like like okay with this plan or understanding other than it just being a blanket statement and i think knowledge is power and that and that's what you're doing in your social media you're trying to give people knowledge so they're empowered so they can take control of their own health that that's yeah. really what it's about and again people can do everything right but because of genetics, because of some other factors, they're still going to get heart disease. They're still going to get cancer. Um, but hopefully they'll be in a better place. Hopefully it'll occur later in life. Hopefully the treatments will work for them. Um, we're not saying, you know, people can't have fun. Sometimes I feel patients think the healthy choice is the, you know, the the choice that's not fun or enjoyable or, or whatever. And that's not true. There's lots of things that you can do in terms of healthy eating, in terms of physical activity that you can enjoy and that can enrich your life. Um, so that's the important element too. It is. I always say it's never binary. I'm like, don't have this switch. Like, it's like, I'm going to be healthy. I'm not like, I'm going to start running and I'm not, I'm like, just dial up just a little bit here, there, even myself with a podcast with Dr. William Lee, who really went into like specific vegetables and fruits. I used to always avoid the salads, like, and all this stuff at lunch and the kind of fancier little you know mm-hmm. stuff that you see that i'm like oh these are granola you know kind of things now i'm like oh i know what that does that's so like i'm still eating this stuff at the end but i'm having some remote conscientious you know uh volitional decision because i know what the benefit is sure. so this has been great anything that you want to include before we jump off i would love to have you back at some point this is just it's been very encouraging and i hope people too can be like yeah these are the problems healthcare this is what we could like help and you know mm-hmm. do this together it's a collaborative effort medicine absolutely and medical and medical it's not medical telling not medical right it's we all need to just come together and say how do we maximize and optimize the lives the physical life at least of, of and mental like for you know people everywhere and sometimes information has to be in small nuggets you know we tend to give if we do give patients information a lot all at one time and then we're like bye see ya uh, you know, in three months or whatever. And and that's what I like about your use of sh- social media is really providing in two, three minute videos, maybe less, some important um, point about, you know, cancer care or cancer diagnosis. And I've seen you do it about lab tests, interpreting the CBC, 
which is their blood counts or interpreting, you know, the use of calcium, as we talked about in testing. And that's what I think is important for patients to uh, be educated, but sometimes also to be entertained, right? You have to get their attention if you want to give them information. And you're finding on the balance right. And, and sometimes there's a place for, you know, the 30 to 45 minute, you know, podcasts and videos, which are a lot more information. And then there's also the place for the short bursts of information, as long as we keep engaging with patients and, and helping them live better lives. That's really what it's all about. And we want to live better lives too. John, I feel so inspired on this Monday morning. You're you better than a shot of double espresso. Thank yeah, well, thank sure. you. I've been drinking coffee, as you can see, while <laughs> we've been talking, but always great chatting with you. Likewise, I really appreciate your time. And again, you can find John pretty much everywhere. He's been on Dr. Phil, Today Show, and all this, I think, in the last maybe 72 hours. So I appreciate you being here. I love reading your new piece. Absolutely.